Christ's evaluation of his church is what matters most because he knows and he sees and he assesses accurately. In high school, I dreaded academic tests, especially math, because it revealed my weakness or my unpreparedness. How many of you remember, I don't know if they do these anymore, it's probably not allowed, but pop quizzes. Remember pop quizzes? Is that just a thing of the 80s, or do they still do those? Right? Pop quizzes is what? You weren't expecting it. It wasn't on the schedule. But today, you're going to have a quiz to see if you are prepared. Um, and I got a math award. That seems upside down, doesn't it? Uh, that's because I knew a girl in first hour that had the same class I had in second hour, and the teacher never changed the tests. So I aced every math test and got a math award, and I still never made it to Algebra 1. And so I'm not not endorsing that kind of behavior. I'm simply telling you I did not like tests. But that changed in grad school. I came to view tests as an opportunity to see what I knew and what I didn't know. It was an opportunity to be ranked, to understand. My son went through Naval Special Warfare training. They know exactly how to test you. And they use weariness and wet and cold. And it reveals ability and inability. For my ordination, I had a panel of pastors and theologians whose aim was to find out what I knew and what I did not know. Ordination is difficult because you don't know exactly what question they're going to ask and how far down they're going to drill And so they will always find a spot that you don't fully know yet. And so a really good ordination panel of pastors and theologians is going to find out what you know and what you don't know and how you're going to respond when you get into the area of not knowing. Are you going to be arrogant? Are you going to try to spin out something in the moment? Or are you simply going to say, I don't know? I need more time to study that out. Exams are designed to expose something. And it's interesting that a good exam, even Christ's exam, exposed strength and weakness and ability and deficiency and health like a good medical exam and disease. Do you know that Christ offers an exam to the church? When we talk about mission affirmed, in pursuing an entirely biblical ministry, what exam does Christ, what evaluation does Christ give to His church? And do we pass the test? Look at the very first verse of the book of Revelation. The very first verse of the last book of your Bible. And I want you to notice, first of all, the person of prophecy. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just the revelation of end times or the revelation of how these cataclysmic events affect you personally. No, the book of Revelation is uniquely designed to reveal to you a person. And if you miss the person of prophecy, you have mishandled prophecy. Revelation in verse 1 is the Greek word apocalypsis or apocalypse. 
And as such, this book, more than any other, reveals symbolic imagery and numbers and literal interpretations as well as figurative. But it's not a predictive, secret predictive code, but it's designed to reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. A history and a sovereignty we can have hope in because of the person of prophecy, Jesus Christ. It amazes me how many sermons and people talk about prophecy without ever mentioning whom? Jesus Christ. It's all about the events and the details and the interpretations. And though those are important, they're not the most important. The unique way the book of Revelation is about Jesus, the Messiah, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Messiah. The Gospels primarily reveal Jesus also, but they reveal Him in His first coming, His birth, His life, His death, and His bodily resurrection. The book of Revelation presents Jesus in His second coming. Right? You have the first advent, Gospels primarily, and the second advent, His second coming, Revelation. And here you see, like we read, His exaltation. Matter of fact, John, who walked with Jesus for more than three years, did not expect to see Jesus look like that. By the way, John was on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and saw a glimpse of this. Do you remember that? But when John sees this, he is undone. What was only a glimpse when Jesus was transfigured is now fully revealed. Look at how Revelation presents Him. Look at verse 5. I'm just going to read a small portion of this. The ruler of kings on earth. That's going to be important because some of these kings are putting Christians to death. Look at verse 6. To Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Look at verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. And there's a reaction. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. And look at verse 8. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's the A to Z, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's the central person of prophecy. But now look at the point of prophecy. Look back at verse 3. Because to miss the person of prophecy will eventually encourage the mishandling of it, but also to miss the point of prophecy is to miss the point of revelation. And here's the point of prophecy, to fuel faith and encourage obedience. How often has revelation just sort of been an intellectual dump and and, and a topic for debates? It's actually to fuel your faith. And I've, I've told some of you this before, my mom would not even read the book of Revelation out of fear because of its contents, because of the kind of preaching she heard. Do you know that Revelation is actually to be a comfort to you? It's supposed to fuel faith and encourage obedience. Chapter 1, verse 3 provides an interpretive key with respect to our motivation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So you've already been blessed because we chose to read a large portion of chapter 1 this morning. And blessed are those who hear 
And here's the interpretive key, who keep what is written in it. How do you obey Revelation? Look at the motivational purpose. For the time is near. The time of the unfolding of these events is upon us. Blessed are those who read it aloud. Blessed are those who hear it. And blessed are those who keep what is written in it. Look at verse 10, chapter 1. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it. Send it to whom? To the churches. And in chapter 1, here's what we're not supposed to miss. Revelation from chapters 1 to 22 is about the Lamb. He's the, the central and centering figure of chapters 4 and 5. The Lamb and the lampstands. What do you mean the lampstands? Right? That sounds like a C.S. Lewis title. Um, the lampstands are the churches. And Christ evaluates His churches. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Look at verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Look at verse 20. This, this is going to let you know who the lampstands are. The seven lampstands are the what? Verse 20. The seven churches. And how often have we made revelation about our own personal experience? It includes you, but it's much broader than you. Because the focus at the beginning here is the lamb among the lampstands. So revelation is not intended to be used as a Hollywood manuscript. But it is to nurture a love for the lamb that was slain. Look at verse 5, where Jesus says, he was slain as a lamb, and he is the faithful witness. That word witness is interesting. We get our word martyr from that word. The Greek, you'll hear it, martus, martyr. It is a judicial witness or a record. And what Jesus is saying is, I was slain as a witness, as a judicial record, that it's all worth it. And what you're about to see does not need to cause you fear because I'm telling you, I live forever and ever. Revelation nurtures a love for the Lamb that was slain. And second, it promotes a holy and bold witness from the church to the world. Look at verse 5 again. Because it is a world that is yet to be freed from their sins by whose blood? Say it, go ahead and say it out loud. Okay, does it say, it, yes, it is Jesus, but the blood of the Lamb, right? Of the faithful witness. And the first thing John sees, look at verse 12, then I turn to see the voice. He turns to look and he goes to identify a person. And on turning I saw, here's the, here this rises up again, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man. And this is probably a reference to what even Zechariah chapter 4 refers to as that menorah. It's the seven, seven stands upon which they would place these oil lamps. And each stand here, seven, represents seven real 
geographical local churches in Asia. And each one is different, though connected. In understanding the source, there are single lights that each candle, if you would, lamp gives, but they are all drawn down to a common oil source. And John turns and he sees seven lamps. It's interesting and I think a challenge because the churches here are pictured as shining lights for God. The church should be, as Matthew 5 says, a glimmering city on a hill at nighttime. Something that just stands out and provides light and direction. But first, before he gets to the churches, look at verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, and he knew Jesus. He could have just said, I saw my friend. I saw Jesus. No, he doesn't say that. In the midst of the lamp stands one like, but not exactly human, one like a son of man. Human-like, but fearful. Do you know the Son of God is present among His church? One like the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, walks among His churches. And I think that, per, for me personally, that changes how I view what our gathering is on a Sunday morning. Because the value that Christ says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. By the way, Matthew 18 is talking about church discipline. He's not talking about small prayer meetings. And where two or three are gathered for truth, for light, for testimony, for purity, I'm with them. Do you know that the risen Son of God walks among us on a Sunday morning? That's encouraging. Well, mostly encouraging. But that's encouraging. Look at verse 13. He is in the midst of the lampstands. He's not an absentee owner or a distant and detached leader. Look at verse 16. Holding the seven stars. The stars may be an angel for each church. The, the stars, angelos also means messenger. It could be the pastors or the church leaders of each church. What I find very encouraging is none of those leaders is mentioned. The church isn't its pastor or its church leadership. The church is so much more than that. But at the same time, Christ is holding, personally owning, keeping close the messengers, the stars. And third, look at chapter 2, verse 1, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Christ is near at real locations, real people, and yes, real problems. And Christ is near. It's what the Hebrews would sing in Psalm 46. God is a very present help in trouble. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to look and connect each of these descriptions with seven churches. This has to be quick. Now, I believe the fellowship meal is in celebration of a new old pastor's family coming in, so 
does that mean I get to carve out a little time for a longer sermon? And everybody says, yes, of course. (laughs) At the beginning of each description of the church, right? Chapters 2 to 3, seven churches. At the beginning of each message to the church, each church gets its own message, John includes one of the descriptions of the, the risen Christ to that church. And that's kind of supposed to stand out, right? It's a writing technique. It doesn't say the entire vision to the church of Ephesus. No, he pulls out two parts. And, and let, me, let me explain this too so we don't get confused. The accumulated images, eight of which are taken directly out of the Old Testament, are not meant to describe what Jesus actually looks like. Right? Sword out of his mouth. Flaming eyes. When you get to heaven, that's, I, don't, I don't believe that's what Jesus is going to look like. He's going to look like the risen Christ, I think, as the disciples saw him. This is a technique to portray his power and glory and a reminder of his character and attributes that should motivate the church. That's what this vision is given for. First church. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, here's the description, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Why did that church need that description? Well, look at the mission affirmed by Jesus in verse 2. You cannot, he, he affirms this, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Here is what Jesus is affirming. Pure doctrine. Pure teaching. Right orthodoxy. Orthodonist, right? Straight teeth. Ortho teaching. Straight teaching. He commends them for that. And he's trying people who want to say that they're apostles, but they're false apostles, and he is affirming them. But look at verse 3. He adds, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And to that we say, well done. Mission affirmed. Verse 4. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So, love-deficient orthodoxy is unacceptable to God? Hyper-separatism without love for others doesn't please God? Yes. They had become mechanical. Right, but hollow. And so they need to be reminded that there is a person who holds the stars and walks among them. And they forgot about Him. And it was evidenced in their coldness and their criticalness of other people. Religion without relationship. And Christ is reminding them, I am near to you. Return to that first love. What was that first love? A love for God. An undivided heart for Him. 
Charles Spurgeon said this, While the discussion of theological positions regarding Calvinism and Arminianism and all nuances in between is not unimportant, our grand object is not the revision of opinions, but the regeneration of natures. We would bring men to Christ, not to our own peculiar views of Christianity. To make proselytes is a suitable labor for Pharisees, but to beget men unto God, new birth, is the honorable aim of ministers of Christ. You have left, you've abandoned, you've walked away from your first love. Grant Osborne said, orthodoxy without orthoproxy is a false religion. Matter of fact, John, who's writing this, would understand this because he said this, whoever says he is in the light, doctrine, holiness, and hates his brother is still in darkness. John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He adds, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we believe the right thing. Yes, there's a kernel of truth in that. That's not where John goes though. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So look at chapter 2, verse 5, and this will make more sense to you. Jesus Himself says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. That's how serious it is. Repent and do the the works you did at first. If not, this is how serious a, a, a deficient orthodoxy is. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Doctrine matters, but a love-deficient separatism does not pass the test. Look at the next church. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Why did that church need that description of Jesus? Well, they are suffering. And some of them are probably going to die. Look at verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here is the mission affirmed, that suffering is not evidence of failure or the lack of success. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. So, so tribulation and Poverty and slander. This is not a church. If you went church shopping, you're not going to be like, honey, I just went to the church of Smyrna this morning and we're going to join. You're not going to do that. This church is struggling. Do you know what mission of theirs is rebuked? Ephesus was rebuked. Do you know in Smyrna, there's no rebuke. Because suffering churches are typically what Jesus says, healthy churches. But you are rich, he says. Let me give you a different perspective. Let me give you a heavenly perspective. I'm the one that died, but I'm alive. 
and I live forevermore. And, and you are small and persecuted, but you know what? You are rich. Smyrna's architecture made it the envy of Asia. Beautiful temples connected by a mall, a group of buildings called the Crown of Smyrna, and an incredible roadway, which is interesting because Revelation is going to talk about this differently, called the Street of Gold. But Smyrna was also known for its loyalty to Rome and to pagan worship and cult worship and emperor worship. Do you know what they called themselves? The first in Asia. What description was given to them? I am the first and the last. In 155 to 56 AD, the famous Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was burned alive for refusing to deny Christ and call Caesar Lord. And it seems like others are going to follow. And so Christ comes in, he says, Remember, I died, but I'm alive. Take hope in that. And I'm the first and the last. Jesus alone is first. Verse 9, who died and came to life. Their near future is uncertain. Their ultimate future is not. Listen to what Paul says to the church of Philippi. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Look at verse 11, Revelation 2. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Mission affirmed, a fearless and faithful witness to the world in the face of death. Look at the, first, look at the third church. Look at verse 12. And to the church... or. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now if I understood you know, what John was aiming at in each letter to the church, this one might cause a little bit of pause. Because why are we getting the sharp two-edged sword? Well, it's a picture of power and judgment. Isaiah 11.4 says this, that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And you're like, so that's the image we get <laughs> as a church? Well, mission affirmed, look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Okay, that probably indicates a base of operation. It could indicate that the proconsul is, is actually passing out death sentences by, interestingly, a sword, and he thinks he's in power and he is reigning in this area and it is satanic. And Jesus is comforting them saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast, that's grasp, to hold on strongly like you would a sword in a fight, interestingly. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. That is the only martyr, human martyr, called by name in these seven messages. You didn't deny my faith even in the days when he was killed. Who was killed among you where Satan dwells. A little interesting fact about Pergamum. It was the site of a library numbering about 200,000 volumes, rivaled only by Athens and Alexandria. So Pergamum valued what? Words. Now you have Jesus saying, I am coming to you with the sword 
of my mouth with powerful words. I think if somebody from our midst were killed, that would apply immense cultural pressure upon us. And maybe even for some to deny the name of Jesus Christ. But they didn't. I know where you dwell. See, these people are not tourists. They're raising their children in that kind of culture. Rome's provincial capital and influential cultural hub. But God knows their faithfulness. Look at verse 13. You hold fast My name. You grasp forcibly My name. But look at the mission rebuked. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. By the way, we don't have time to get into all the details. I'm going to give you a real general sort of overview. You have some there, some inside of your church, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So you have this idea of false teaching and stumbling block so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So somebody within them is caving to culture and causing people as a stumbling block to go into idolatry and immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. They're allowing themselves to be corrupted from within and even though they're holding firm to the name of Christ, there is a danger of decay that is about to undermine them. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Hold fast to Christ's name and do not compromise the faith as you witness amidst a hostile, violent culture. We need to encourage one another with this. They say that Denver is about five to seven years culturally behind Seattle. And we already feel the effects of it. And our families feel the effects of it. And we feel the pressure to sort of change definitions or change doctrines or sway and give in. Christ is saying, I'm going to affirm you for doing this even as persecution mounts and it affects you. One of your own was killed. You are grasping tightly to My name and the faith. But don't be so much looking outside that you overlook the compromise that's happening inside. Repent of that. I love the word repent. That's a good news word. Jesus came preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Repentance is the good news that there's always a way back. There's always an invitation to come back. Look at the next church. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Both ideas have to do with judgment. Daniel 10.6, his eyes like flaming torches, divine, pure, piercing insight. Bronze feet, again Daniel 10.6, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Glory and strength, the kiln will be heated up to a white-hot heat to refine and purify. And with that picture of judgment, look at, what, look at what Christ affirms in verse 19. 
I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That is a beautiful description for a church. I actually thought of Highlands when I read through some of those, those commendations. And I'm like, what could go wrong with a church like that? Well, verse 20. <laughs> but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, immorality and idolatry creeping into the church. And I gave 20, verse 21 her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her. Some kind of inclusivism that is spiritually adulterous is, the, is the, probably the most basic way to say that that someone is teaching a kind of unbiblical inclusivism that is a compromise leading to idolatry and immorality. The message for those who did not engage in the cult of immorality was to stand their ground. Yes, a lot of times our battles are external. And sometimes even for small churches, probably the size of ours, in Asia Minor, the battles are internal. God is going to step in and look at verse 23. I'll read 23 and 25. And all the churches, there's the aim again, the lamb and the lampstands, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, right? Blazing eyes. And I will give to each of you according to your works judging brass feet. Only hold fast what you have until I come. I would say this, Highlands, hold fast amidst a sensualized and sexualized culture that seems to overwhelm and undermine the church and our families. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And again, why does this church need that description? Seven spirits is unclear. Perhaps it suggests the completeness of divine power or the presence of the Holy Spirit in each church. It certainly indicates life. Stars in his right hand Lights, stars, signifies power and authority. To hold something means possession and control or, or to keep it and preserve it. As it said in uh, chapter 1, verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, they are the angels of the seven churches. God is protecting, if you would, the messengers of the church. But ultimately, Highlands is not ours. Jesus has sovereign ownership of this church. Look at the rebuke in chapter 3, somewhere between verses 1 to 3. I didn't put the exact reference. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
which is interesting because just outside of Sardis was a famous necropolis, or we would say cemetery, with the graves of dead kings. And it's almost like Christ is saying, what should be the living assembly of Christ and light and life and hope is actually more like the necropolis outside of your city gates. In response to their dead condition, look at the five imperatives that are given in in chapter 3, verse 2, all of them focusing on spiritual alertness, the spiritual world, not physical, but spiritual here. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Wake up. Strengthen what you do have. Remember, keep it, and repent. And I thought as I was preparing this, in what ways might our works as a church be incomplete? I know where, I know where we do well. And there are commendations for that throughout these seven churches. How are we doing in helping the weak and faint-hearted Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. How are we doing helping the hurting and the abused and the confused? Because Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 3, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. By the way, that I do not believe that is talking about a rapture of the church out Twice, Sardis had been taken by sneak attack. They came over what they thought was an impregnable wall, and military people came up over that wall and defeated them. And Jesus is saying, you think you're secure, you think you're safe, but you're actually dead. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come over as a thief and overtake you. I love this. Look at verse 4. Here's the encouragement. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. If you ever find yourself in the minority of those doing right and being faithful, Jesus says, press on. Look at verse 7. We'll go through these last two churches quickly. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. Look at the mission affirmed in verses 8 and 10. I know, here he keeps saying this to every church, I know something about you. I know you. I know you. He would say this to Highlands. I know you. I walk among you. I'm in your midst. I know you. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. You're weak. You seem insignificant. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I love verse 9. I'm going to do something so that they will learn that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Christ commended the church in Philadelphia for four things. They had an open door that they were to step in and be influential with. They had but little strength. They had kept the Word of God and they had not denied the Lord. Last church, Laodicea. Verse 14. 
And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And again, why those attributes for this church? Verse 14, the faithful and true witness, whatever God states on a matter is the right thing. Verse 14, the beginning of God's creation, He is the authoritative source. The mission affirmed at Laodicea, none. The mission rebuked, look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And and folks, I've heard silly sermons of preachers telling people to either be hot for Jesus or cold for Jesus. That makes no sense. The idea here is lukewarm. When you get water, you either want it cold or hot. And the one thing that Laodicea lacked was a pure, fresh water supply, unlike surrounding regions. So they piped it in. And by the time it got there, it tasted funny. And it was lukewarm. And if you went to sip it as a guest and you weren't used to South Florida sulfur water, you'd spit it out. It's no good. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, what made them lukewarm? What made them no good in the sense of being influential? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. They knew what he was talking about. They knew the quality of their water. For you say, here's the problem, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And here's the divine perspective, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That description is uncomfortably close to the situation of the church in America. The problem is we say we are rich and we have prospered and the result is I need nothing. And spiritually, we are rich and we have prospered and God, I don't need you. It's common for people to think they're okay spiritually because they're okay financially or for a church to think it's healthy because their budget is good. They became apathetic in their self-sufficiency. See, an all-consuming pursuit of wealth leads to idolatry. And you can deny God by worshiping Caesar And you can deny God by worshiping money. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's not not equating spirituality with poverty either. It's It's our perspective of God even when we've been blessed. Behold, look at verse 20. This is very familiar. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And often that is used evangelistically. And you can probably go to Hobby Lobby and find that picture where Jesus graciously is standing at the door of an unbeliever's heart. And honestly, it's a nice picture, right? And if you open the door, He will come in and you will have salvation. And though that's true on some level, that's not what He's saying. 
He's saying, church, you've shut me out. It's like he's out there at the glass doors. And we're in here singing about him, giving to him. I'm not saying we're doing that. I'm just saying I'm trying to make this very personal. And we dressed up for him, and we sang things about him, and we talk about him, but he's outside. There's no true fellowship. Because in our wealth and prosperity and in our bigness and our polishedness, the person who walks in the midst of the lampstands is outside knocking. Jesus is inviting the Laodicean Christians to realize how they have shut Him out of their lives with their own self-Christianized sufficiency. When you you evaluate a church, what do you look at? This is the conclusion. If only we had a music team like that church. Or a teen ministry like that church. Or facilities like that church. If we just had fill in the blank. That that feels awkward saying it that way after looking at the seven churches, doesn't it? And I want to encourage us to continue to evaluate things as I believe we are through the eyes of Jesus Christ who walks among this lampstand, who loves us, who cares for us, who I think would have a list of affirmations for Highlands. I know your works and you're doing this. Well, we, I've seen it in just two months of being here and my third officials. I've seen your love and your service and your care. There would, there would be a huge list of commendations, but I also think there would probably be some rebukes as he walks in our midst and knows us. And I want us to be affirmed by God and care less about what other people think. And care less about what other churches are doing by way of comparison. Because the, the Apostle Paul said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And comparison and critiquing and envy do not do the work of Christ. God evaluates His church through a very different lens than the one we often use. So, so Highlands. Let's get back on mission. Or let's stay on mission. That we are a light shining for God in the midst of a dark and hostile world. If you haven't seen that yet, this culture is coming like a tsunami. And if you stand up for truth, yes, speaking the truth in love, grace and truth, worship in spirit and truth, but even in doing it lovingly, You're going to pay the price. Be faithful. Be faithful until the end because it really does matter. It's all about the lamb and the lampstands. So do we pass the test of Christ's evaluation? Because when you get done reading Revelation, you're going to realize it's about Jesus Christ, preeminent worship, discipleship, holiness, and a witness of truth and hope to a world caught in the vortex of evil and moral darkness and hopelessness. And the good news is this. 
Jesus died for sin. And we are following the Lamb into a new creation. And as we follow Him into that new creation, we are called to be a witness to a hostile world. So let's stay on mission together. Let's pray.